good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. First off, a disclaimer. I enjoyed Toby Hooper. I enjoyed his work. I would say I love Toby Hooper, Hooper, but I I hate that word love. I I never met the guy. I never once met Toby Hooper. I never spoke with him. Uh, We ran in similar circles. I know people who knew Toby and worked with Toby, but I never personally met Toby. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not just a great horror film, but it's inventive, ingenious, and most of all, it used every available resource to make the absolute best film that Toby Hooper could make with what he had. This is the genius of low-budget filmmakers. Carpenter showed this as well with with the original Halloween, and they made a terrific film with that that was concurrent with its resources as well. Now, you mix this frugality and resourcefulness with creativity, and you got something pretty special. Horror is usually the hardest realm because it's the genre that seems to work the best with no money. Expectations for horror are usually low, with the opposite happening when high budgets creep in and and change the overall feel and aesthetic and tone of a horror film. I mean, compare the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre to the bigger budget remake and big budget sequels, including Hooper's own Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, you know, the buzz is back, and you see what I mean. You see, all of this is coming out of uh, this weekend, Life Force, Uh, Toby Hooper's 1985 sci-fi horror epic film became the subject again of some Twitter narrative and people were talking about it and going back and forth on they love life force, they hate life force, and how the whole thing came into being. And I know that Scream Factory put out a terrific Blu-ray with Hooper's original director's cut, the European release. Uh, The American version was released here, obviously, and uh, was pretty dumbed down. I think they shaved off like seven minutes out of it or something, and we're going to get into all that. But anyway, I started looking at all of this and uh, really looking at, because it also couples with the uh, long debate in horror, uh, whether Toby Hooper really directed Poltergeist. This is not a dunking session on Toby Hooper, who is not here to defend himself. Rather, it's an examination of, of Hooper's work, triggered by recent discussions of, of like I said, his, his life force and, and the failure of that film and how other directors have ventured into this territory with some who returned to the indie low-budget realm and happy to stay there and after dismal big-budget studio experiences. And I'm not just talking about whether their films did well or not. They just didn't like it there. If this were a math equation... Well, then A is the director, plus B is the budget. So A, the director, plus B, the budget, equals C. And C is the sum of both, which means if you went to school, you understand mediocre. C is average. And I think that's usually what you get when you take these very powerful, great and creative low-budget directors and you plug them into gigantic studio films. It is not 100%. I'm going to get to that. You have cosigns and plot points of studio interference, national politics, competition, societal context, and ego, and, and so much more. All of these contribute. But I'm going to focus on Hooper for most of this episode in Life Force as the attempt since around 2013, it's been to rehab Life Force into some misunderstood classic. It's not misunderstood. 
Uh, it's not so esoteric that it can't be comprehended or it was ahead of its time. It's really a very clunky and in some cases an extremely incompetent film. And, and I'm going to go into this and support it. Again, it's not attacking Toby Hooper. It's not a terrible film. And Life Force has its detractors and, and, and they like to point out that, that it is. However, Life Force does, for me, put to rest over who really directed Poltergeist. But before we go to Hooper and all of that, I want to look at a few other directors briefly to to make the framework out for this episode. So let's look at Ron Howard quickly. Uh, His low-budget Grand Theft Auto, and then his comedy Night Shift, and even low-budget by today's standards, but the breakthrough film for Tom Hanks was Splash. And in my opinion, these are Howard's best films, hands down. He focused on characters. He used simple framing techniques for action and narrative. Howard used crisp, tight direction. He was a man totally at home in his low-budget skin, and that's probably because he came from TV. He maximized his resources, focusing on the characters, the dialogue, and and knowing he didn't have a hundred takes in him or was allowed a hundred takes like Kubrick in his Paragon of Excess, The Shining. I mean, look at Howard's first big-budget film, Willow. Dragons, knights, elves, whatever. The same shit with a Lucas-backed budget. And Lucas backed at a time when when Lucas was seeing a stumbling from failures of, of Howard the Duck and Labyrinth. And I'll even go back to 1982 with Dark Crystal because I'm going to say, Dark Crystal was an uh-oh moment for Lucas. But the success of Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Empire Strikes Back kind of masked that. And some were already wondering, if not for the pairing up with Spielberg, did Lucas really only have one good film in him with Star Wars? And even then, Star Wars was considered low budget for its time. Howard stumbled with Willow, making a solid C that has its cult fans but was an underwhelming big studio venture that didn't really give us anything new. And the same can be said for almost every other Howard, Ron Howard big studio production, culminating with The Dark Tower, Solo, and In the Heart of the Sea, the whale movie. Describe your thoughts in your head here. Think about this. When you heard that Ron Howard was being brought in to rescue Solo, another film presently under rehab, as you know, Star Wars fans make their case it's actually underrated and a terrific Star Wars film and misunderstood. I don't agree with that at all. I think it was a total mistake and should have never been made. It's not a bad film in the way of production and even in the way of cast with some you know great uh, portrayals in there, but it's an average film. Spielberg made the jump more successfully because... He was able to channel the low-budget director into the big-screen formula by making the studio bend to his will. In the beginning, Spielberg was much like Robin Williams. Hollywood didn't get him, and they couldn't harness him. What Spielberg was doing was different. It was a whole new thing, and instead of fighting Spielberg, they kind of let him do his thing. And overall, it worked. Spielberg stumbled with 1941, which left a lot of heads scratching as as no one was really asking for a World War II dark comedy on the heels of Close Encounters and Jaws. Even with uh, Saturday Night Live powerhouses as Belushi and Aykroyd, who really don't have much more than extended cameos in the film. And personally, I love 1941 and I think it's brilliant. 
but the big budget comedy spectacular formula didn't work for Spielberg on this one. And coincidentally, it will be his Robin Williams vehicle, Hook, that Spielberg will call his worst film. The sheer excess of the film overshadowed both principals' talents and yet still gets a free pass by many diehard fans. I might have to agree with Spielberg as I found Hook dreadfully saccharine, overproduced, way too long, and simply not entertaining. Ivan Reitman made the jump and, and cleared it with the original Ghostbusters, but face-planted with its terrible 1989 sequel. I mean, look, back in the day, it was rare to see a comedy especially paired up with a major special effects extravaganza. So a lot of people were expecting Ghostbusters to fall on its face. And Reitman, you know, he came from, from the low-budget realm. I mean... Animal House, uh, that was considered low budget, and a lot of his films were considered low budget. I mean, Ghostbusters was a risk, and even at its screening, at its premiere, a lot of the studio executives, including Columbia's executives, you know, patted him on the shoulder when they came out of it at the end and basically said, you know, hey, Ivan, better luck next time. Then the movie went on to to become, you know, the, the highest grossing comedy ever. I, I don't know if it still holds that record, but I, I think it does. But look, Robert Altman did the same thing from a history of beautiful and wonderful and quirky independent films. They finally, Robert Evans and them, were able to throw money at him and give him a huge budget with Popeye. Many people look at Popeye as a huge misstep. That Altman was out of his depth, made a mess of a movie, which led to Altman's exile for like 10 years in Hollywood. John Landis made the jump. Again, I referenced Animal House and such. And he did it well with comedy, and Landis was on a run there. But he ironically fell on his ass, returning to his low-budget roots in Twilight Zone, the movie. Again, this was not, you know, his send-up kind of thing of Amazon Women on the Moon or, or the Kentucky Fried movie. No, Landis, in returning to his low-budget roots, sidestepped a lot of studio protocols and the you know low-budget, get-things-done mentality did not mesh well with studio demands, bigger stakes, and the need for a certain bureaucracy to be in place, which resulted in a literal tragedy and disaster on set with the helicopter incident on Twilight Zone, the movie, which pretty much pushed Landis out of the mainstream again. I mean, he'll, he'll still hang on, he'll return, but it damaged him. And I don't know if that really makes my point in you know low-budget filmmakers coming to big screen because Landis really did it successfully. I would say him and Spielberg are perhaps the best of the you know best treated and and uh, best off of of indie filmmakers transitioning into the studio system. So that brings us to Spielberg and Hooper and the old Hollywood debate of who really directed Poltergeist before we move over to Life Force. Hooper turned Hollywood on its ear with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and for the longest time, it was viewed as the goriest, bloodiest film ever made. Seeing it for the first time for me, however, fed into the Mandela Effect bullshit. It's not about things or times changing. Mandela Effect is just people remember what they want to remember, and they saw what they wanted to see, and they have shitty memories. The film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, by today's standards, would be PG-13 if language were reined in. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like an urban legend. People saw it, and they made it out to be far gorier than what it really was. Kind of the same with Psycho as well. 
Psycho is is not all that gory or bloody. I mean, you know, some Hershey syrup in the shower, and that's about it. Texas Chainsaw is low in blood and high on terror, and with a name like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, how could you not be so psyched out when going to see it? Now, keep historical context in mind, as the reign of Charles Manson was coming to an end around that time. I mean, he had been arrested, he was in jail, his death sentence was commuted to life, and the, the Manson family and the, and the whole helter-skelter thing, it was starting to become a household word by now. So the hippie movement was finished with Texas Chainsaw Massacre as it brushed the last crumbs from the free love table. This lifestyle was deadly. That is the moral of the story. It was wrought with freaks and horrors and there was just no way to live. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a wonderful PSA for conservative values and about staying on the main road and not veering off down offshoots and, and dark pathways. Now you go forward a couple years and you go to Salem's Lot, the miniseries on CBS, and I did a whole uh, episode on that. You can look on that. It's uh, called Salem's Lot Sucks Like a Good Vampire Movie Should. And uh, if you go back in my cinema podcast library, you can find the episode on Salem's Lot where I get into far more detail. And Salem's Lot is not a classic, but shit, is it fun? Hooper was likely not the guy to bring this to TV, and they still have not done the proper translation of King's brilliant novel about the death of small-town America. Instead, Hooper went to basics. He stripped down the complexities of King's novel, and he invoked his low-budget, old-school horror roots. And he turned the loquacious, talkative Barlow vampire basically into an icon. He's a Count Orlock, and, and Reggie Nalder's you know, Barlow, he doesn't talk. But he did strike some nightmarish imagery. Salem's Lot, the acting is all over the place. The casting is odd. I mean, you get a lot of TV names like David Soul. I mean, Starsky and Hutch, really? Fred Willard? Some of the scenes go on way too long with TV dialogue, but when the vampires show and do their thing, shit, do they deliver. And Hooper was in his element here. And I argue to this day that David Soul's staking of Barlow the Vampire is the best if not in the top three vampire stakings ever put to film. Hooper was given a little bit more money. I think the budget was around four million bucks, but he was confined to the parameters of network TV, and, and we were on the cusp of the Reagan revolution with conservative values about how to make a major comeback. I wrote about a lot of this, and I think in part four uh, of my uh, Dread Central series on horror and personal horror. I mean, back in the, on the cusp of the 80s, people wanted 50s fun in their TV. But Stephen King was blowing up and everyone wanted a piece of him. Texas Chainsaw Massacre got Toby Hooper the Salem's Lock gig. And at that time, this was his fattest budget to date. And while TV dabbled in made-for-TV horror before that, I mean, listen to episode 69 of, of my podcast here. The miniseries did well, caused a lot of buzz, and helped move Hooper toward the mainstream. I mean, his star was rising. Hooper found his grindhouse drive-in horror soul and exploited it well in Eaten Alive. That was in 1976, I think. And then in 1981's The Fun House. And, and Fun House, in particular, gave him the chance to get imaginative. Not a bare-bones budget, but, but it allowed him to flex and gave some truly inventive visuals and a fun time, as, as its title presented. While a slasher... It borders on a monster movie, giving a prototype for what Jason Voorhees would turn into. 
It was perfect late night cable horror and that's where I caught it. And again, showed Hooper work best on limited resources and on high inventiveness as a director. Toby Hooper seemed best when, when he was having fun. However, rumors of a nervous breakdown plagued him as he left the snake horror Venom in 1981 and there were rumblings of alcoholism and drug use and all of that was kind of creeping up behind him, which would culminate with Poltergeist. I mean, I don't know if any of you know, I'm sure most of you know that Poltergeist was originally conceived as a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind and its original title was called Night Skies and it was more on the science fiction end of things. It was a contained sci-fi thriller about the alleged 1954 uh, Kentucky farm invasion story, uh, the Hobgoblin story, if you will. A Bloody Disgusting published an article a while back with an interview with Poltergeist second AC John Leonetti. He was brother of Poltergeist's director of photography, Matt Leonetti, who said Hooper pretended to direct uh, Poltergeist, but it was Spielberg's movie and Spielberg actually directed it. I have a, a link uh, to this article in my show notes. All of this was done, Leonetti said, because of a pending director's strike. Hooper was there for show. He was given some basic tasks, but it was Spielberg who really directed. Some casts support this, others do not, and unless Spielberg confesses, we may never really know. The sci-fi story in Poltergeist, however, shifted to a ghost story and Hooper was brought in, likely again because of his Texas Chainsaw Massacre legacy and his recent success with Salem's Lot and his collaboration with, you know, the other Stephen. Hooper was a brand name and akin to the parallel with Lucas. How can you really fuck up teaming up with Spielberg, who was about to be at the top of his 80s game in the summer of 1982? Hollywood was also trying to corral the new young talent, and at this time, uh, John Carpenter was given a studio check to indulge his boyhood love of the thing with a direct translation of the novella story. You can go back and uh, listen to my one podcast, uh, A Whole New Thing, in which I argue absolutely I am firm in my stance that uh, the 1982 film was not a remake. Uh, it is a direct translation of uh, the Campbell novella. And you can call it a remake if you want, not that it really matters in anything. But to me, that's also what killed the thing. And we can talk about that another time or if you just listen to my previous podcast. John Carpenter made what many believe uh, to be his greatest film and perhaps one of the greatest horror science fiction films of all time. Carpenter would try the Studio Avenue again with Christine and Starman and arguably Big Trouble, all with mixed enough results that John Carpenter turned his back on the studio system after Big Trouble in Little China. While he's proud of the film, he left the studio system more disillusioned than ever, and he's remained independent ever since. You can take the indie filmmakers out of the studio, but you can't put the studios into them. Poltergeist is a mixed bag, with a camp saying it was a Hooper film, while others saying Spielberg hijacked it and really directed it. Zelda Rubinstein, if you remember, she played Tangina, uh, the short lady, uh, the psychic in the film. She seemed like she had uh, a real axe to grind and claimed that it was substance abuse and the aftershocks of Hooper's alleged nervous breakdown that left Spielberg filling a power vacuum. She claims she was on set for six days and it was Spielberg who directed everything. Other cast and crew say otherwise, making it clear while Spielberg was the producer on set and oversaw things and approved things in advance, it was Hooper calling the shots. In the end, 
It will be life force for me that answers this whole poltergeist debate. Hooper was courted by Canon Films after Poltergeist. If you remember Canon, they were the famously cheesy company known for its Death Wish uh, franchise with Charles Bronson, and as well as making Chuck Norris a household name with, you know, kind of like those. It was, yeah, it was. It was like Canon was kind of like a low rent Carolco of of the '80s, and at this time it was headed by Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, and Canon cranked out action genre fare for mass consumption, playing successfully to his viewing base. With the success of Star Wars by now moving into a franchise and space movies becoming the new thing after E.T., Canon wanted its own big budget sci-fi spectacular. Adopting a Jurassic Park we spared no expense attitude, they met with Toby Hooper on the heels of Poltergeist to capture another bolt of lightning in a bottle. Canon originally wanted their directing hired gun Michael Winner of their Death Wish franchise to direct. Now, Hooper ended up taking the project. I don't know why Winner dropped out. At the time, Golan and Globus not only threw him a massive $25 million budget, which, by the way, translates into about $60 million in 2021 dollars. And they also inked two more movies, making it a three-picture deal for Toby Hooper. This was a lot of money thrown to a director accustomed to under $4 million films. Look, Toby Hooper was a director whose best work, it, it was all, you know, character-driven horror films and contained horror. Now he was getting placed in charge of a sprawling sci-fi epic action film. The horror, in my opinion, was an afterthought to Canon. It was Hooper who would bring that to the fore. Canon was a unique company. While I describe it as a, a low-rent Carol Co., they, they were more than being defined by B-movie action fare. They produced Oscar material, including Runaway Train, The Assault, and Othello. They likely ripped off James Cameron's treatment for Rambo First Blood Part Two with their Missing in Action film and its sequel that became a convoluted mess. They even thanked Cameron in the credits of the original Missing in Action movie for his inspiration. They expressed thanks, but not culpability. Like Hooper, Golan and Globus were low-budget B-guys. And like Hooper... They came into money. The matchup seemed right. Low budget roots and desires to make bigger and better stuff. However, Canon's true misstep would be Superman 4, which showed you can't reverse engineer big budget franchise films as it left Warner Brothers for Canon, and I don't know why. So when Canon optioned the Colin Wilson novel, The Space Vampires, Hooper was brought to the table. Look, I suspect Salem's Lot had more than just a little something to do with this in in addition to Hooper's uh, Chainsaw Massacre pedigree. The title was changed to Life Force to distance the property from Canon's low-brow B-movie aura. It sounded, you know, the space vampire sounds like a low-budget B-movie. Hooper was basically given a blank check and free reign to do whatever he needed to do to give the studio its monster, big-screen, sci-fi, space, epic hit. And that's the problem. A studio known for making low-budget fare for its base suddenly had the epiphany to make something its own Star Wars. The problem is Star Wars is Star Wars. And if you're going for Star Wars-esque, you don't mix it with horror or alien invasion. Star Wars is adventure with a sci-fi backdrop, not a sci-fi horror. Hooper had his own ideas. Instead of thinking epic and big screen, he applied the, and I quote, 
70 millimeter format to a hammer film kind of theory inspired by Quarter Mass in the Pit, a hammer film, which were counter to a flowing budget going one way and creative genre thoughts going the other. So you're crossing the streams. You have one way of the stream going where it's a lot of money being spent, but you have a creative genre driving force going in the absolute wrong direction and crossing over. And as they said in Ghostbusters, don't cross the streams. It would be bad. And as said, look, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Look, it worked with Ghostbusters, but it didn't work with Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2, people rag on the 2016 film and rightly so. And I've done a podcast on that. However, people forget just how bad Ghostbusters 2 really was. And it was so bad that it, it put Bill Murray off from ever doing a three. That's why we're finally getting a third Ghostbusters film, but unfortunately without Harold Ramis. And that's because Ghostbusters 2 was the big budget mess that Ghostbusters avoided. Look, it worked with Star Wars, but it didn't work with Battlestar Galactica. It worked with Superman, but not for canon Superman. So Universal plucked Spielberg from obscurity, known for his popular dual movie, the truck movie, if you remember, with Dennis Weaver. And it was shot in 13 days in his inventive work on an action film called The Sugarland Express. And his time clocked on TV work. Well, Zanuck and Brown and Universal decided they would give that kid a chance. I mean, the, the word is that Spielberg was basically almost fired like five times. And it was uh, Zanuck and Brown, uh, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, that came to bat for Spielberg and said, give this kid a chance. We believe in our guy. We're, we're backing this horse. And Sid Sheinberg and the studio brass at Universal were like, you, you better be fucking sure. Because this guy is running this thing over budget. Let's get off the ocean, bring this whole movie back to the studio in a big tank, and shoot the rest there. But it didn't happen that way. But as we know, Jaws of the Revenge did. The making of Life Force shows how little Golan and Globus understood their director or even what they were doing. You can't apply low-budget principles to big-budget applications and expect a perfect hybrid. It would be interesting to see what Spielberg could do with a Blair Witch-style budgeted film. Or could he do anything with it? Can big-budget filmmaking be reverse-engineered to the low end? James Gunn showed what he could do graduating from Troma to Slither to Guardians of the Galaxy and, and keeping one foot in his original world. I mean, it can be done. But in the case of Life Force, we had two opposing forces. Canon long since flowed a certain way. While the occasional film did garner awards, the, the argument has been, did they always set out to make such award-nominated fare? Or were they happy accidents made possible by the individual people they allowed to the project? Look, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Or if you grab a handful of darts, I mean, you have a few chances at a bullseye if you throw them all at once. For example, they gave Toby Hooper incredible free license with Life Force. This means not just money, but they trusted him to know what to do with that money. Knowing horror wasn't enough. They bought Hooper as a package. They assumed he would know what to do based on his track record and the raging success of a big screen epic movie like Poltergeist. They wanted Hooper to transcend the B-movie fair. They wanted Lucasfilm. They didn't want Eaten Alive. They didn't want Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Canon wanted to compete directly with the big studio machine and deliver Star Trek or Star Wars quality. 
Did they envision Oscar-nominated effects? Scores? Maybe. But Hooper had other things in mind. Look, Toby Hooper invoked Hammer Films, wanting to go back to this, you know, low-budget territory, believing he could fuse the big money, no accountability, and his own personal horror taste into the novel's translation. And Colin Wilson, the author of The Space Vampires, of, of which Life Force is based on, he'll go on to disavow Life Force, claiming it to be one of the worst films ever made and perhaps the worst translation of his work ever. The weird part is you can see elements of Hooper and Poltergeist, the crawling stakes spitting out the cancer tumors, the guy ripping his face apart in the mirror, the, the more visceral horrors, Joe Beth Williams in the skeleton-filled pool with bodies and coffins literally exploding from the earth. Look, I'm going to bet that's all Hooper. And why do I say that? Look at the film on DVD. Look at Poltergeist on DVD, and especially at the end when all hell is breaking loose, and start slowing it down. One scene shows a stunt woman, Diane Freeling, you know, the stunt woman for Joe Beth Williams, running with a very apparent Carol Ann doll from the house as coffins explode from the ground. There were charges that were set off in a row, one after another. Look, that's Hooper. He repeats these kind of effects in Life Force in the finale as London comes under attack. Corpses will launch, and they often launch mechanically like the ones in the climax of Poltergeist, the giant bat creature at the end on the cathedral steps. It moves mechanically. It doesn't really move in the way of a fluid animal or creature, but that's kind of Toby Hooper's thing. Look, it's not as refined as Spielberg would have it. Even his ghosts and apparitions at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Spielberg's Raiders, have that Richard Edlin visual effects feel, that high-end feel. Spielberg's ghosts and spirits, they're cleaner and sleeker and, and more refined. When Steve Railsback dreams of the space girl and she hurls herself from the shadows in the form of one of those giant bat things, it, it looks like a bad carnival prop on one of those funhouse rides. Like, a funhouse, see? Look, go back to 1981. Funhouse with Toby Hooper before this thing turns into a naked Matilda May. Yet Hooper learned from Spielberg. The life force sucking scenes and the lights and the chaos have the same flying furniture and strobe lights feel as Poltergeist. The set design and action is almost entirely the same. Hooper took that with him and the comparison is undeniable. Spielberg ensured that Poltergeist would not look like a Toby Hooper film. Life force, despite all of its money, looks like a Toby Hooper film. Life Force is a small indie horror trapped beneath layers and layers of money. Hooper tried to make Life Force look like a Spielberg film, which is just what Cannon wanted, only he swung and he missed. There's just too much Hooper in Life Force and the base gritty horror elements didn't work. Everything in turn was overshadowed by Matilda May's nudity. Now, I have read where Golan firmly wanted her nude because the nudity was imperative to the story, yet the two males never once have their genitalia on screen. So May's smooth, full frontal cropped with a tuft of pubic hair is okay, but two dicks and four balls need to be blocked by carefully placed container bands, broken glass in the foreground, or shoots above the waist. Only female nudity is imperative to the story. Look, the nudity was a distraction. It did not further the story. It made no sense, and it also helped keep the teen market from the film that was needed for ticket sales, as R ratings still mattered then. Matilda May is suddenly in some kind of white space robe at the end. Where the hell did she get that? Did she just pick it up at some new age store? 
And just how are the souls being sucked out of people at the end, out of all the people across the city? Who's doing that? Hooper wanted to borrow certain Spielberg elements, but to him, he was making an expensive B-movie. He said it, hammer. That's what you need to know. The horror assets didn't really work with a higher concept narrative of vampire lore's genesis from space or something like that. Instead of exploring this route, it unevenly dips into horror corpse effects, culminating with a Dawn of the Dead ending, leaving a lot of people wondering, just, just what the fuck did they watch? The epic scale of a big screen movie seems limited to three main London sets with lots of extras, many in really bad makeup, wandering around the same confined areas while model sets are to give us somehow an expansive view of London. And in fact, if you watch the ending of that, you'll even see some of the extras trying to get out of the way of the main actors as they're walking or running down the street. They, they don't want to trip them up because everything is being timed and the extra is like, oh shit, I'm in the way, I better move. I mean, it looks like a conscious effort to get out of the main actor's way. It is clear they are shooting on a soundstage, and in fact, it was one of the James Bond sound stages. And, and Alan Hume, who was, I believe, a Bond cinematographer, gives the film more of a, a TV miniseries look than a widescreen epic sci-fi motion picture. Toby Hooper had the money, but he didn't know exactly what to do with it. He went to some cool practical puppets. However, not to the John Dykstra visual effects. It didn't go to the visuals that would clearly show London under siege. It did not go into cast. Until this film, Steve Railsback was best known for his Charles Manson portrayal in Helter Skelter, a TV movie from like 10 years before. The only other name that would be in this was Patrick Stewart, and he was still a good almost three years away from Picard on Star Trek. Alien. The movie Alien struck the right balance of horror and science fiction. However, I will argue Alien is a horror film with sci-fi elements. Life Force is a horror film fighting against the sci-fi elements couched around it. That's because its director was a dyed-in-the-wool horror director who had little interest in exploring the wider, higher concepts of space and science fiction films. The space angle serves the opening. From there, it becomes a cat-and-mouse game that species would pull off far better a few years later. I mean, you got space vampires sucking life force, creating a plague situation that will spread exponentially with incredible logic gaps in between. Patrick Stewart, like I said, headlines an otherwise unforgettable cast, with the exception of May, who is again remembered for showing off every inch of her anatomy. Many scenes tilt toward borderline silliness, like Patrick Stewart overacting and screaming that somehow results in a kiss with rails back. Look, I'm not homophobic. The scene was just silly and unintentionally funny. Maybe if the two good-looking nude male vampires kissed, that would have stifled my laughter a bit more. Hooper built a sci-fi action film around core horror elements, and the final result is a resounding thud, not a flop not even a terrible movie. It's smack dab in the middle of the road. It is a grade C. Yeah, it's got some cool things to it. Maya's alluring for sure. She's beautiful. But the performances are hammy to downright dull and all underdeveloped. Hell, one of the military guys that starts out in the beginning of the movie just vanishes like halfway through. And the one doctor that they could have really done something who seems to put all this together, they just give him a special effects ending at the end. There are some good practical effects, but they're marred by some underwhelming visual ones, as I said. The green, uh, Halley's Comet, stands out as one of the weakest 
and the constant dissolves in the opening between the astronauts exploring the space vampire ship are annoying as we never get to see anything. Aliens' Dan O'Bannon contributed to the script, as, as he will do with Invaders from Mars, Hooper's next venture, and you see the exploration of the derelict ship very much compares to the derelict ship on LB-426 in Alien. But Hooper never holds on anything too long. He just wants to get to the good stuff because as an indie low-budget filmmaker, you don't have fucking time to indulge such big epic scenes and shots. You need to move. The clock is always running. You can't afford crew overtime and your resources and locations and everything. It's all limited. You need to get what you want in one to two shots. You don't have a whole day like Kubrick did forcing Shelley Duvall to swing a bat at Jack Nicholson. It's, it's hard to shake that attitude from the low budget end. As a low budget horror filmmaker, I don't even know what to do when I have a full crew sometimes. It's weird when you have a budget that allows 30 to 35 days of shooting and the money to cover it. It's as alien as the naked space vampires. However, life force is fun in a cheesy, bad movie kind of way. This kind of thing was said about Hooper's earlier alligator outing, the eaten alive. So bad it's good, and, and this is what life force is. Look, the money spoiled the fun. Imagine had Hooper been allowed to scale it all down. Instead of the sweeping sci-fi epic, he was allowed to explore the cool idea that vampire legends originated from alien visitors. Now that's a really cool idea. Instead of all these boring British military characters, we would get like some guy hunting the vampires down like a modern day Van Helsing. The vampires as they, they move through the modern countryside are being stalked by this Van Helsing. You could really build on this by making the lead vampire not basically mute and that her nudity is a treat instead of exposition. Remember, Hooper made the lead vampire in Salem's Lot mute as well. We see flashes of this in Life Force, but the producers wanted more cowbell. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. More cowbell and we'll pay for it. One crew member described Cannon's attitude toward Toby Hooper and that is, keep going. Here's more money. Just keep going, Toby. But to what end? Cannon wanted Star Wars, but they got star zombies. Dead space, I don't know. The effects are a mixed bag. The logic often fails. I know it's just a movie, but they make it really, really clear with great emphasis that the transformation, the incubation process of this thing, the infection rate between life force incidents is about two hours. Then the bodies explode for some reason. I will tell you, it does look good. However, why didn't the eviscerated bodies aboard the Churchill Space Shuttle explode into dust? They were hanging around there for a while, leaving Rails back as a lone survivor. Who sucked the crew to death if the vampires were all encased in those glass coffins? I mean, no matter. Add to it the naked space chick. Sully gets the ability to jump into bodies without any reason as to why, except saying they take the form of whatever their victims see or desire. I mean, I guess... Life Force is a mess. Look, and for the record, I saw the European cut at 117 minutes recently. That is considered Hooper's director's cut. But I saw the original shorter cut in theaters in 1985. The director's cut is a tad better, but overall, you have two different filmmaking philosophies in competition, and they just don't fuse well. The ending of Life Force left me again asking, what was all of this? 
What should be a grand scale is, is like watching a small indie horror. I keep saying it, but there it is right on the screen. Hooper was out of his depth. I think this is exactly what Spielberg was trying to prevent with Poltergeist. Poltergeist was a small movie set in the suburbs. However, it had a huge epic look. Spielberg knows what to do with money. Hooper did not. You'll get some cheesy gores, some, some cool moments, a lot of uh, you know shocking and gritty and visceral things. But that's about it. I mean, think about that helicopter scene where Matilda May manifests like out of blood or something. Everybody's spitting blood out of their mouths for some reason. And then she just splashes. What the hell was that? I don't even know what that meant or how it relates to her and her abilities. Look, the, the bloody disgusting article on Hooper not directing Poltergeist might be dead on. Despite how much we don't want to believe it, the evidence aligns with the idea that Hooper did not fully direct Poltergeist. Hooper was a kid in a Toys R Us store. He was on a shopping spree. He needed tight parameters. He didn't need, here you go, Toby, here's the check, now let's talk story. Should have been the other way around. Hooper needed guidance, which is perhaps why Spielberg is said to have had such a firm hand on his direction on Poltergeist. The stories are consistent that Spielberg was on set every day, planned out shots, approved them, and made sure the trains ran on time. Perhaps he was keeping a leash on Hooper for structure in such a large budgeted studio film. It was MGM. This wasn't being outfitted in the Texas desert with a camera and having a blast with Gunnar Hansen and the gang. Spielberg may have directed Hooper, not the film, as he had a clear vision for what Poltergeist should be, and Spielberg at that time was also building his brand. Both Spielberg and Hooper protested the R rating for Poltergeist before PG-13 came into play and secured a PG rating by making certain changes. So I wonder what kind of deleted footage exists in the Hooper territory from Poltergeist. Hooper's predilection for the old, the campy, and cheesy came through in his bizarre sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I remember the reception to the film and its odd marketing campaign that didn't so much build it up to be a horror, but rather a dark, dark comedy. It was like a spoof. I mean, the parody sequel bent, fell flat, and missed the audience, and one critic said it appeared that Hooper had absolute contempt for his original film by making this sequel. The film has gotten some rehab on home video and such, and, and it's gained a cult following over the years. It broke even theatrically, I think, making, I think it was almost 9 million to its 4.5 million budget, but Canon was unhappy with the final film. Golan and Globus had buyer's remorse, I think right after Life Force, and it seemed locked into Hooper for Texas Chainsaw 2 and Invaders from Mars. Hooper again had his own ideas and, and he wasn't delivering to expectation. He was still nursing a black eye from Life Force with many critics calling that film's failure the first steps toward obscurity for Hooper. Maybe Hooper only had one good film in him and maybe it was time for him to leave the movie stage. And he couldn't shake off the whole poltergeist controversy. The situation for me is not so much whether Hooper truly directed poltergeist with a free hand, but more about this indie horror filmmaker handling the huge issues of what comes with a large budgeted film and its effects on the indie psyche. Invaders from Mars dropped just before Texas Chainsaw 2, and while it was visually interesting, had a cast headlined by Louise Fletcher, some cool monster costumes, look, the story was a mess. The original Invaders from Mars 
it was a marginal cult film from 50s, you know, 50s paranoia from the Red Scare era. It wasn't as great as so many want to remember it. Nostalgia helped to rehab it for the cultists, but what made it stand out really for me was the production design and the lighting. When you think of the original Invaders from Mars, you think of only a couple real standout scenes, and that's because of the lighting and the production design. While the money allowed Stan Winston effects, it still garnered Razzies in this category. Louise Fletcher's oddball frog-eating performance got a Razzie nod as well, and I sat in the theater, a fan of the first film, wondering just what I was seeing. Without the 50s Red Scare context, the remake was just dumb and silly. A few months later, I went to the theater and I watched Texas Chainsaw 2, and I, I wondered the same thing. Was, was Hooper just spending money and having a good time on Cannon's dime? The three-picture love affair certainly did not return anything to canon. They got screwed after Life Force. We're probably feeling that buyer's remorse, but they were locked into two more films, as I said. They, they bet on the wrong horse. And if it was indeed Poltergeist that made Golan and Globus believe Hooper was right for the job, they were wrongfully misled. Hooper had three shots to prove his big screen, bigger budget chops, and he failed all three times. Life Force... Texas Chainsaw 2, and Invaders from Mars. The first time can be a mistake. Second time is a pattern. But what about a third time? It certainly was not a charm. Taking small, indie, low-budget directors and thrusting them into the mainstream, big studio budget bracket often yields mediocrity. The talents of the indie filmmaker honed by resourcefulness become impaired by infusions of cash, creating perhaps an almost drunken effect. Look, if a studio threw $25 million at me in today's money, I would not be aiming to shoot a low-budget movie feel and tone with that money. I would be looking for big screen, epic look, widescreen, 1080, whatever you want to call it. I would not be looking to recreate a Hammer film. Not with $60 million fucking dollars. Mediocrity is often the result for reverse engineering low-budget indie filmmakers. Some escape it. Hooper was a good indie filmmaker. He gave us Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and, and that alone is a legacy. The rest of his films, including Poltergeist, they're, they're a mixed bag. If you approach from a low-budget, cheese-loving stance, you will adore Toby Hooper. If you judge him from an elevated film, perhaps snobbish position, he was incompetent at best. I think I can end this podcast by saying Toby Hooper did his best work with little money. He was able to get his heart and soul up on the screen that way. Money clouded the vision, and I think we can see that from Poltergeist onward, and especially with Life Force. Someday I hope Spielberg will clear the whole matter up. I think Hooper is owed that, no matter what the final reveal may be. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. I look forward to talking to you again real soon. Thank you. <laughs>